Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. I'm Eric Malinsky. We have been living through the era of peak TV, where there is too much out there for any one person to watch. And it seems like everybody has a favorite show that they love and can't believe it hasn't gotten more notice. So we asked you to tell us about your favorite sci-fi fantasy shows or movies that you think are unsung gems. And because of the strikes in Hollywood, we're going to need some new stuff to watch pretty soon. By the way, this episode has a few spoilers as people discuss why they like these movies and shows. The previous episode was about shows that were canceled too soon. And several listeners suggested the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance for that episode. The show came out on Netflix in 2019, and it was canceled after one season. I also considered putting it in the previous episode because I was upset when Age of Resistance was canceled. But Don Fancher suggested it for this episode. She liked the show, but she thought one season was enough, and I was really curious to hear why. The Netflix series is a prequel to the 1982 classic film The Dark Crystal, which was a passion project for Jim Henson. The 1982 film takes place on a planet called Thra. It's ruled by these repulsive, vulture-like creatures called Skeksis. Ah, roast nebri, my favorite. I want the rare. By the way, it's worth watching the movie alone just for the puppetry of the Skeksis, which was really cool. The Skeksis had wiped out a society of small, elvish characters called Gelflings, and there were only two Gelflings left in the world. You, Gelfling? Like me? Well, yes. But I thought I was the only one. I thought I was. To be honest, I thought the Gelfling heroes in the original film were kind of bland. And because of that, I never found the story in the original film as compelling as the visuals. But the prequel takes place when the Gelflings are thriving. They have this rich culture with competing alliances, It's almost like Game of Thrones with puppets. And most of the Gelflings are slow to realize that the Skeksis mean them harm. I heard you and that thing. His name is Law. Conspiring to end Skeksis' rule. What happens to the Gelfling if the Skeksis fall? What happens to Mother? Is it Mother you're worried about? Or her crown? Why you stop? By the way, if you're sick of CGI, this show is beautifully handcrafted. They do use CG, but very subtly for added realism. 
that's what got Don into the show. It's such a beautiful world, and there's so many little creatures and puppets. Like like every time they like they're walking through the wilderness, and every time there's a shot of them walking somewhere, there's like two or three little critters to look at, and it's just it was just really gorgeous. I had a friend who his main he liked the show, but his main problem was he thought it was unbelievable that the Gelflings would be so. Uh, naive to think that the Skeksis were really like these benevolent rulers that it would have taken them so long to realize they're being duped. And I was like, really? You found that unrealistic, that part? <laughs> <laughs> really? Un- like That would never happen in the real world? <laughs> I, that's another thing I liked about it, actually. Yeah, it was because it, it is really unsettling because a lot of us grew up with the Skeksis being these clear villains, you know, like, People would do Skeksis impressions at parties in college, you know, like it was you just a couple words in the voice and like, you know, you know, that's a villain. So to see characters who you relate to worshiping them and saying, of course, they have our best interests at heart is really off putting. And I, I'm pretty sure that was done deliberately. It really is like, what are we accepting as normal that isn't normal? So I thought that was a very nice little subtle touch that they did to really make you uncomfortable for a little bit to see people being like, oh no, of course they're great. Yeah. So I was I was thinking that this would be a gone too soon, but I thought it was really interesting in your email that you made the argument that it's okay it didn't get a second season, that in fact, it's not worth continuing the timeline up until this genocide, that this is actually a good spot to stop. I thought that was a really interesting idea. How come? Well, I kind of did want more. And like in rewatching it again, there was more like hints of like maybe a second season than I remembered because, you know, I watched it a few years ago. I mean, I don't know because I don't know what story they had. So I didn't know what what had come up to here. But I didn't feel like some other kind of gone too soon things. You do feel like there's a cliffhanger that the story is incomplete. The way they crafted this story and maybe it was done intentionally. I don't know. It felt like that there was probably that this was a good stopping point and that if they, you know, maybe there's more story, but there would be a number of stopping points. You know, it's kind of a story of the resistance to the Skeksis that, you know, is going to like go to this really dark place before you get to like the original movie. But I feel like it it told the story of unity and, you know, how they get to a place where they're going to have to go through a dark time. But what about the idea that you're? we know that this is going to fail? We already have knowledge of the future that it's going to fail. They're all going to die. You know, that there's something about ending on an earlier point in the timeline that you feel like kind of spares us from that to some degree or or makes the story about something very different. You know, it makes the story about how we treat each other and how it matters to do the right thing, even if you can't stop an apocalypse that's coming. I guess it's nice that it spared us. You know, I I don't need to have all my media bathed in sadness just to make it serious. But I do think it's more the second thing for me about why this is a good point to stop. Because, you know, we've got global warming. I just, my community was just devastated by floods, you know, a month ago. Even though you you, you watch this knowing that, that they're going to like lose, basically, at least temporarily, they're going to lose pretty badly. The story is still about them coming together, still about them deciding that they need to fight, that there is something to fight, and that they do want to fight for themselves and for Thra, the planet. You know, they don't know that they're doomed, right? But we do. But we're still rooting for them. We're still rooting for them, even though we know they lose, because how they fight and their decision to fight 
is important. What we do and how we work together still matters. And we still care about those characters. We still want good things to happen to them, even though we know they're not going to win in as far as saving their, their species or preventing like an ecological, you know, uh, devastation. But we still care about them, which means we should still care about ourselves. <laughs> so, um... We heard from another listener about a show that could have gone into the category of gone too soon because it was canceled after one season. And the show that he suggested was also about characters trying to stop a planet-wide extinction. Odyssey 5 was a Canadian show from 2002 starring Peter Weller. It aired on Showtime in the U.S. The premise is that a group of astronauts were orbiting the Earth when our planet is suddenly destroyed by something mysterious. And then an alien shows up and takes them aboard his ship. The alien appears to them in the form of a human so as not to freak them out. And he says the same thing happened to his planet. He's been going around the galaxy trying to find survivors who can help him stop whatever is destroying these worlds. I pick up radio signals. I follow them to their source. But when I arrive, the source is always gone. I'm always too late. Like this time. Yes and no. The alien sends the consciousness of the astronauts back into their own bodies five years earlier so they can figure out how to stop this apocalypse. Mike Shaw has been thinking about Odyssey 5 lately because the show dealt with AI. It's interesting because they never put that forward as the premise. Like they don't talk about or they didn't at the time because AI was total science fiction. So the idea that AI was somehow practical and accessible and, uh, you know, widely understood in the population wasn't there. So it's not as part of the premise. But once they get back to the present or their present, which is 2002, the, the driving villain seems to be AI. And throughout the, sh- the series, uh, there's only one season, but throughout the, the season, they come to discover that not only does AI exist, but there are different kinds of AI and they have coalesced to a point where they are sentient and there are different entities scattered across our nascent internet. Are they the ones that destroyed us? Where did they come from? And the themes of AI that we think about today, like the issues like, uh, will it take over jobs? Can it replace humans doing things? It's interesting because like the Matrix came out about three years earlier and that was like the computers got smart and killed us, you know, or turned us yes. into batteries. This seems to be a much more subtle nuance, like a lot. It, it kind of reflects the, the debates that are happening now where people are like, is this good? Is this bad? Like we don't, you know, there's different AI, like like some of it we already use. We don't realize it. We like it. And it seems to be like in that kind of murky place. Not only that, but. What one thing the series never resolves, and I will get into spoiler here because this is where it kind of clicks in your brain when you've learned this. When you get to the end, there's a cliffhanger and there's this implication that, wait a minute, there's a group of humans that are also working on AI. They discover, the the protagonists discover that the AI they've been fighting against might have actually been extraterrestrial. So is AI the enemy or is alien AI the enemy and human AI is good? Hmm. You know, they even meet uh, what they call a sentient, an AI that that gives itself form. And they meet one and he's like goofy and funny and it's a comedic episode, but he's like a good guy and he's an ally. So it came out in 2002, right? Yeah. 
post 9-11 sci-fi is really interesting too because it deals with some really heavy stuff in a way that people are having trouble sort of like trying to grapple with a lot of like really dark big ideas uh world shattering ideas you know fringe um i think 28 days later you know in the walking dead i just think that people are going to look back and see a kind of interesting introspective weight to that kind of early 2000s sci-fi not only that, so it's interesting you say that because the other show that I think about when I hear post 9-11 is I think of Battlestar Galactica. Right. Because that was super heavy on the post 9-11 stuff. Like, it hits you over the head with it. This show came out about the same time. And what's fascinating is that if you watch this show, Odyssey 5, and if you're watching Battlestar Galactica at the same time, you will actually hear musical echoes. Hmm. And it is heavy on like the oboe and the strings that it sounds eerily similar to Battlestar Galactica. But do you find now that when you try to recommend the show to people, they look at you like, uh, if it's so great, how come I never heard of it? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so I think one of the things that you had said when you had talked about this show is that how we've been in this era of peak TV and now with the writers and uh, actors strike, there's going to be not much produced just the idea of being in peak tv people know that there's stuff they haven't heard of before mm. so i actually maintain like a list on a site where i have a list of all my shows that i recommend to people so i call it oh my god you haven't seen this exclamation point and i just share that and there's like 50 or 60 shows on there i always tell myself when i retire i'll have all this show to watch <laughs> all this tv to watch till i die <laughs> There are also classic shows that many of us haven't watched yet. Like if you've never seen Twin Peaks, if it came out before you were born, it's going to be new to you. Tone Vontaputa wrote us from Belgium to recommend a classic comedy, Spaced. The show was created by Simon Pegg, who went on to star and co-write the movies Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End. Spaced ran from 1999 to 2001 in the UK. It was a cult hit back then. I was introduced to it by friends who worked in the animation industry with me because the show was all about being a geek. Simon Pegg is playing a character called Tim who lives an unglamorous life in middle-class London. He and his roommate deal with all sorts of mundane things. Relationships, jobs, friends, annoying neighbors. I borrow a tea bag. Only if you bring it back. You can have a tea bag, Brian, you can't borrow one. Because their lives are so unexciting, the characters often space out and imagine that they're in a movie, a TV show, or a video game. When Tone first discovered the show, he definitely related to it. So that sort of thing where your life is really mundane, you have a, you have a job, you have an apartment that's actually quite expensive to pay on your own and that sort of thing. But in the little things of your life, you sort of, you inject all the stuff that you learn from, from geek culture or from, from references. There's an episode where they, uh, where their dog has been abducted by a vivisection lab and they break into it. It's, it's a whole heist movie episode thing, which in itself is already a nice reference. Every one of their friends gets a, gets a code name, like, like you do in a heist movie. Uh, they're named after Star Wars characters. Sound off. Luke. Oh, Chewie. Anthony. Leia. Yes, Tim Ahan. Jabba. It's Jabba the princess. Yes. Yeah. Here. Okay. Like today, I think today everybody would know that Leia is the princess book, but in the 90s, 
knowing who the princess is in Star Wars was a pretty nerdy thing to be. Yeah, and like you're saying too, is when you love these this particular genre, this the stuff that you love, it's always uh, the end of the universe or life or death in every movie and every episode. And the stakes are so low in your life that there's a part of you that kind of wants to live in that other world, but you know it's almost frustrating because you, if you have an active imagination, you feel like you're almost halfway there, but you know you'll never get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's only when I was like 20 or something, I didn't have that imagination. That I think Spaced is one of the reasons that I started to develop that sort of thing, to insert, you know, like Scotty references or Star Wars references in everyday life situations. Tone had another recommendation, the movie Eric the Viking from 1989. It's not exactly Monty Python, but it's Python adjacent. Terry Jones wrote, directed, and appears in it. John Cleese is in it too, but the main actor is Tim Robbins. It's about a Viking who just isn't into pillaging and fighting. He doesn't see the point. So he goes on a quest to ask the gods to end the age of Ragnarok. Nobody's ever crossed the rainbow bridge to Asgard. Well, we'd be the first. You mean we'd be dead? No, we would be the first living men to set foot in the halls of the gods. And at one point in the movie, the characters go to an island called High Brazil. And the thing with High Brazil is it's enchanted. If if a drop of blood is spilled on the island, it sinks beneath the waves. Very interesting climate change metaphor, I think. Uh, of course, that happens. The islands, because there's Vikings on the island, murder happens. And the island starts sinking. And the inhabitants of the island, who are, uh, they are all the... They're very nice to each other all the time because they they can't kill each other. They, they have to avoid any possibility of violence. But how do you take revenge? How do you punish people? How do you defend yourselves? We don't have to. We're all terribly nice to each other. But then the island starts sinking and the inhabitants of the island don't believe it's sinking. They just keep saying, no, 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 no. We have all, we have... We have things in place that, that this cannot happen. It can't happen. But it is, look! I already appointed the Chancellor as chairman of a full committee of inquiry. And in the meantime, I suggest we have a sing-song. Good idea. All up to the point where they're, they're all underwater and they're all gone. Do you find it hard to convince people to watch Spaced or Eric the Viking? Yeah, because they're old. Today, uh, being a geek is really mainstream with the MCU and like Star Wars and, and everything. But it's it's the easy part, you know? It's not the watching the really weird movie that's old and right. that, uh, that's strange and that doesn't fit with sort of commercial commercially produced content of today. Right. You have to feel a bit like an outcast to enjoy it. I mean, I don't want to, to exaggerate, but you do have to have this feeling of being not normal to empathize with the characters in in that sort of content. And Eric the Viking is an, he's an outsider in this violence-ruled Viking world. Similarly, Tim in Spaced is, is a bit of an outsider in, in the adult world. You're talking about the other stuff, too, that's that's um, more accessible. And those things, the fantasy is you're one of the Avengers, you're one of the Jedi. You know, it's a little, it's different. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're the hero. You're the, the big, shiny, famous person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But... Some movies that are supposed to appeal to people who want to imagine themselves as the big, shiny, famous person, they don't always work out either. Drew Meyer is a podcaster. I've actually been on his Doctor Who podcast several times. And he wrote to us about one of his favorite films, John Carter from 2012. 
It's about a Civil War veteran in the 19th century who gets transported to Mars, which has futuristic spaceships, a feisty princess, armies at war, and aliens of all shapes and sizes. If you come here, stand by me. This might get dangerous. The movie was based on the classic series by Edgar Rice Burroughs from the early 20th century. In fact, the John Carter books were some of the first science fiction books ever. When Drew was a kid, he loved the John Carter books and the comics as well. But the movie... It was the single biggest financial bomb in movie history. No, it was that big? Yes. Wow. Yeah, yeah almost $300 million loss. Wow, I gotta go big or go home, I guess. <laughs> well, there's a... Yeah. <laughs> Personally, I think the movie's financial failure sort of informed a lot of the negative reviews that we, we got around the movie. Well, what did you think of it? I loved it. I absolutely adored it. I absolutely adored it. So what did you love about it? I... <sighs> okay, so here's the thing. Part of what I loved about it is nostalgia of seeing something that I loved in both literary form and in a graphic novel form on the big screen being realized with modern technology. I, I thought the voice acting was great. I thought most of the acting, real people, was great. I thought the world building was fantastic. I thought the designs were fun. I think the realization of the Martians, they're supposed to be like 15 feet tall and, you know, massive four-armed creatures. And... And yeah, I know that they're like eight or nine feet and the actors had to be on stilts. But I think the realization of that is truly spectacular. Just that the world, a giant city on mechanical legs barreling down the desert on its way to mine more (laughs) resources from the dying planet. I mean, all of this stuff is so imaginative and it was a romp. It felt pulpy and it was exciting. Let's face it, the biggest change they made from the books for the movie series is people are wearing clothing, which is not the case in the original book. So, I, you know, I think that was probably a smart choice on Disney's part. There, nobody was wearing clothing? Yeah, there's a lot of naked folks in, in the books. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so somebody's listening. They're like, oh, well, maybe this was misunderstood. Maybe I will see. I'll watch it on Disney+. Plus." Do you think it definitely holds up for somebody coming in cold, not knowing anything about John Carter? Uh, I think folks coming in just listening to this, give it a chance. You don't have to know anything about it. Just know that there's going to be a lot of fancy names. You don't really need to worry about that. The plot might be a little confusing, but again, just sit back and enjoy the ride. Like, think of it as a big summer blockbuster popcorn film. There you go. You know, I think that one of the problems is, like, I know people who had never seen Star Wars as a kid, and they decided to finally watch it. And because Star Wars has been strip-mined by everybody else... When they watch Star Wars, it seems like the most derivative movie they've ever seen in their life. Because everything they've seen in Star Wars, they've seen somebody else do it since Star Wars. Does John Carter have a similar problem because it influenced so many things? It almost feels like it's derivative of the things that it actually influenced. That is 100% exactly accurate. Yeah, I think the the, the directing job was originally offered to Zemeckis, and Zemeckis is like, nah. Now, Lucas has already stripped everything he needed to out of this film. <laughs> um, you know, they've got they got master characters called Jeddax that are running around in this desert planet uh, with large howling bestial characters and, you know, dark lords who have control people's minds and can shoot lightning. And I mean, all of this stuff was taken from these books 
It was inspired by like these little kids reading science fiction at a young age. You know, everybody read this. It was a hugely, hugely popular pulp science fiction story. I like these films that people don't seem to love. I don't know if it's capitalism or what it is that people just assume that the quality of a film is how much money it made. Listen, you and I both like films that didn't make much money. There are there are movies that are just aren't out there for everybody. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. To me, the fact that John Carter was a flop and the planned franchise never happened actually makes it more interesting. These days, I've been feeling franchise fatigue. I'm hungry for something new, something weird, something that swings for the fences. Sarah Harker wrote in to recommend a show that might fit that description. Centaur World is an animated series on Netflix. The main character is a warhorse who gets separated from the warrior who's riding her. Stay with me! The horse, whose name is just Horse, seems to be falling off a cliff, but she snatches a magical medallion in her mouth, which transports her to a world of centaurs. Her initial goal is to reunite with her rider. But is her learning how to be dependent upon a community? But it's Horace also telling that herd that they are they do not have to be so isolationist in their community, that they can go out and explore and see how the world has changed. So well, how would you describe the tone of the show? Because I think it's interesting that like on, it's got it seems like it has like really it has like over the top humor. It has lots of sincerity to it. But then it could also deal with like dark, weighty themes. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I would say it is a lighthearted deep dive into trauma and culture, and it is about change and growth and community. And there's also like a whole song about being incompletely anxious and your coping skill is to breathe in a bag. You can breathe in a bag. Just breathe in a bag. Yeah, Centaur World is a musical, like the whole series. The other thing I will warn you is that I watched this show in 2021 and I still turn to my partner and go, guess which Centaur World song stuck in my head? Hmm. Some of them are very simple, but there's also these beautiful layers. They do a great job with light motifs in it. There's a bunch of Broadway actors in it because it was made during COVID and they couldn't be on Broadway. <laughs> so they just did this weird show. You made it to Centaur World and nothing better represents our world than this colorful collection of singing and dancing Another thing that Sarah likes about Centaur World, it tells a complete story. 
it stops. Like it comes to a natural conclusion. They didn't drag it out. It feels like they understood that Netflix was only going to give them two or three seasons. So they did in two seasons. The characters are wildly different and also make this beautiful ensemble. There's like one song where everyone's like, we don't know where food comes from in Centaur World. Because you can't just go eat grass. The grass is grass tars. Leaves are leaf tars. Like everything is a centaur. I don't want to be a dum-dum. I'm just hungry and I want some information, Mr. Please. Where does food come from? There's a character called Comfortable Dog who is the, at the admission of the show, the most sexual, attractive character you've ever met. I'm Comfortable Dog. Comfortable Dog. I'm Comfortable, Comfortable, Comfortable Dog. And he has a song about becoming himself, becoming Comfortable Doug. Um, you know, I used to be called Comfortable Doug because that's my name, but now I am Comfortable Doug and all of you can be comfortable too. The one of the lines of the song is like, I've never found a husband or a wife. And it's just very casual about like, like sexuality is never explicitly discussed. Not like, ooh, I identify as bisexual, which I do. But like characters are casually queer. Like one of the characters is coded as being trans. Again, these conversations don't really come up in the show because it's about war and trauma and musicals and becoming comfortable with yourself and being willing to embrace who you are. It is such a good show that I like was so hesitant to watch. And then because it was 2021 and there was a huge surge, a lot of my friends ended up getting COVID. So I'd like write them cards, like saying, hey, feel better. Here's some like my media recommendations if you would like something to do while you're stuck in your room for two weeks. Also, Centaur World, please join me in hell. Please join me in like just being like, breathe in a bag, breathe in a bag. She's right. I have not been able to get these songs out of my head. I've been walking around the house all day today singing, I'm comfortable, Doug. <laughs> I'm comfortable, Doug. So far, we've heard from people who are fans. But what happens when you work on a film or a show that gets lost in the flood of content? Caitlin Martin works in stop-motion animation. She was very proud of the work that her team did on the film Wendell and Wild. The movie is on Netflix. It was directed by Henry Selleck, who famously did The Nightmare Before Christmas and Coraline, and it featured the voices of Key and Peele. We are Wendell and Wild. Your personal demons. Who? Well, you can summon us to the land of the living. Why would I do that? Because we'll give you whatever you want. Huh. Only thing I want is my parents. And they're dead. Uh-huh. Conference. We can't raise the dead. Well, we do know how to lie. <gasps> I like that plan. My previous experience before joining Wendell and Wild was only in pre-production. So when I got to join Wendell and Wild, it was the full momentum of... You know, we have 35 stages running at the same time, and this is what it looks like to have camera team and the ADs and lighting and scenic. Everybody just kind of like mad little ants running around and uh, getting it across the finish line. As we got towards the end of the shoot, they tagged me in as Puppet Wrangler, which is a part, a person part of the team who helps move puppets from the fabricators. So they're doing costume hair uh, tensioning the armatures to make sure everything functions well, and then getting it into the hands of the animators for the shots. So when you're working on the film, was there a lot of excitement among the crew of like, given the talent involved that you were working on this film? Oh yeah, it was huge. There were folks who were part of the crew who had worked with Henry 
during Nightmare. Some folks have been there since Coraline. So there were some people who have been part of Henry's team since the beginning of his career and his work. And there was a lot of history there. We had folks on our team who were fresh out of undergrad. So this was, you know, their first film out of school. A lot of passion, a lot of excitement around getting it off the ground. Wow. So when the movie was released, uh, did it get the kind of attention you were hoping? It was interesting because, you know, we no one understands how the Netflix algorithm works. And so for us, we were, you know, this was the project that we'd been working on every day for many, many years. And then you don't really have control over how Netflix distributes it or how their algorithm works or really what that looks like. So we we got a very limited theatrical release. So there were some theaters that showed it in, I believe, LA, New York, a couple in Canada. And we had a local release uh, for all the artists to get to enjoy, bring friends and family and get industry support from other stop-mo people here in Portland. But when it came to looking for it on the Netflix homepage, for folks who didn't work on it and people who might not be plugged into the stop-mo scene, I don't know if it reached them. So we'd be like, oh, Wendell Wild just came out. And I don't know if it if it landed with that impact to people who didn't know that it was being made. For, I think for anyone working on a movie or a TV show, at any no matter what you're doing, it, it'll be it's going to be frustrating if the project comes out and you feel like it's not seen enough. But I feel like with stop motion animation, the word people often use is painstaking <laughs> to describe it. Um, yeah. I mean, so much of it is about like putting in the time because you know there's going to be a payoff in the end. So does that feel kind of extra frustrating with something like this? Oh, I think so. And very much as a labor of love, you want as many people to see it as possible. I think Henry Selleck obviously has a huge cult following. And for us to for us to contribute to that body of work was incredible. And you also yearn for why a cult following? Why can't we have the greater world uh, championing this Yeah, painstaking <laughs> labor of love. <laughs> what have you found in terms of when you went, when you start pitching it to people, have you found like, okay, this, this actually kind of hooks them. How do you describe it? Yeah, I would describe it as it's a lot of the classic ingredients of Henry that the audience has come to know and love. It has a very specific visual style that he also developed with Pablo Lobato, who is the character designer who did the illustrated passes of Jordan Peele and Keegan-Michael Key as Wendell and Wilde. Henry wrote it in conjunction with Jordan Peele, and Key and Peele are two of the main voice actors, so you're getting their comedic sensibilities plugged into it. And then that's paired with uh, the protagonist, Kat, who, you know, she's gone through incredible hardship in her youth that has impacted how she has grown. Now in her teenage years, she is trying to find her direction and navigates coming of age in a very profound and grabbing life by the horns kind of way. And all of those intersect for a really wild ride. There, there's not going to be much of a fall TV. There's probably going to be hardly any bit of a fall TV season. People are looking for stuff to watch. This is perfect for like, you know, the Halloween time, October. Yeah, absolutely. I know last year when it came out, it came out, I think, a week before Halloween. So we didn't get a lot of lead up into getting to get the momentum going for Halloween. But this year, yeah, absolutely. There's there's demons, there's monsters, there's spooky undead souls, fake blood, <laughs> you know, all the all the good stuff you'd come to love. One thing all these movies and shows have in common, they took creative risks. 
Those choices may not have always paid off in terms of the box office or the ratings, but they still went for it. And fantasy genres have so much room for creativity if people are willing to go there. AI wouldn't know how. Happy watching, everyone, and take your time. It might be a while. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Don Fancher, Tone Vontaputa, Drew Meyer, Sarah Harker, Caitlin Martin, and Mike Shaw, who, like me, is originally from the Boston area. But unlike me, he still has the accent. You know, what's so funny is I lived in Beijing uh, for 11 years, and the Beijing accent is the exact opposite of the Boston accent. So we drop our R's, they add our onto words. Mm. There's a actually a guy from the Boston area who moved to China to do stand up and he had this great joke. Uh, Boston lost all their eyes and they just went to Beijing. <laughs> <laughs> In the show notes, I put a list of everything we've recommended and some of the stuff our guests recommended that I wasn't able to fit into this episode. My assistant producer is Stephanie Billman. The best way to support imaginary worlds is to donate on Patreon. At different levels, you get either free Imaginary World stickers, a mug, a t-shirt, and a link to a Dropbox account, which has the full-length interviews of every guest in every episode. You can also get access to an ad-free version of the show through Patreon, and you can buy an ad-free subscription on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to the show's newsletter at imaginaryworldspodcast.org. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.